We come now to the time of reading of the Scriptures, and uh, may God bless both the reading and the hearing of His Holy Word. Reading from 3 John. Hear the word of the Lord. The elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in the truth. Beloved, I pray that in all respects you may prosper and be in good health, just as your soul prospers. For I was very glad when brethren came and bore witness to your truth, that is, how you are walking in truth. I have no greater joy than this, to hear of my children walking in the truth. Beloved, you are acting faithfully in whatever you accomplish for the brethren, and especially when they are strangers. And they bear witness to your love before the church, and you will do well to send them on their way in a manner worthy of God. For they went out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support such men, that we may be fellow workers with the truth. I wrote something to the church, but Diotrephes, who loves to be first among them, does not accept what we say. For this reason, if I come, I will call attention to his deeds which he does, unjustly accusing us with wicked words. And not satisfied with this, neither does he himself receive the brethren, and he forbids those who desire to do so and puts them out of the church. Beloved, do not imitate what is evil but what is good. The one who does good is of God. The one who does evil has not seen God. Demetrius has received a good testimony from everyone and from the truth itself, and we also bear witness, and you know that our witness is true. I had many things to write to you, but I'm not willing to write them to you with pen and ink. But I hope to see you shortly, that we may shall speak face to face. Peace be to you. The friends greet you. Greet the friends by name. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Will you now uh, join me in a, a time of prayer? Oh, Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning with great anticipation that through thy word and through thy spirit we shall be encouraged to live in a way that is worthy of the gospel, worthy of our God, to seek that which pleases you, and to live according to thy word. Lord, we meet this morning with various needs, various issues of life, challenges, temptations, frustrations. In them all, may you show us in the word this morning by your spirit that Christ is sufficient, that His grace is sufficient, and that we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. May we see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, and so therefore the exigencies of life may fade into the background and be in their proper place. God, we pray for our families, for fathers and mothers, for children. We pray that our children would grow in godliness and that we might see them, as the Scripture teaches, walking in the truth. That we might have that joy. And Father, we pray for our nation this morning. So many things that disturb us. And we understand that the 
spiritual battle is fierce and real. And yet Christ is the strongest of all who binds the strong man and plunders his house. And so we have every confidence that Jesus goes before us to fight our battles and in fact has ultimately already won. So we in him, in the king's army, rejoice in the victory of Christ, our great king and savior. We pray for those who are away this morning, Lord, those who are traveling, especially for Pastor Phil and Barbara who are traveling. May their joy be full in being together, relaxing and and renewing their minds. May they rest truly in the Lord. May you be gracious to them as they travel. May they return with, with, uh, to be with us again as we rejoice in the faithful teaching ministry of Phil. Father, there are things that we don't express to others, but certainly you know them. You know what's on our heart this morning. You know what is a heavy burden for us. You know what is a great temptation for us. And so in each of these things, Lord, remind us of your eternal power, of your eternal love, of a great purpose which cannot be denied in each of us. And so resting ourselves in you and in you alone, we have faith to believe that all will be well as it is well with our souls. Father, now we come to the time of preaching of the word of God. May you give grace to your servant, Jay, as he stands and opens up your word. May we receive it, not as the word of man, but as it truly is, the word of God, living and powerful, working in us who believe. May that word have its desired effect as you will it. In this hour, this morning, we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thy will be done. Lord, hear our prayers. If you uh, remember um, our time together this past June, we looked at the second letter of the Apostle John. It's a very short letter, but it is amazing in its depth of love and concern for a group of Christians who are in peril. And it's amazing in its uh, depth of theological richness. In this little letter of Second John, John brings to mind uh, the great themes of divine election, love and truth, grace, mercy, peace. <clears throat> but that's not all. He reminds and urges believers to walk in the truth and to love one another and to abide in the teachings of Christ. But that's not all. There is the apostolic declaration that we have the closest of relationships with God the Father and the Son. But that's not all. John reminds us of a full reward that awaits the faithful Christian. But that's not all. There is still the very heart and the purpose of John's letter. Second John. It was written with the underlying drama of many deceivers who have gone out into the world as emissaries of Antichrist to corrupt the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ is coming in the flesh. And that, of course, is to the ruin of the souls of men by their deception. To protect his friends in 2 John, John warns them 
to beware of false teachers and of welcoming and aiding any one of them, lest they unwittingly take part in a wicked work and work yet, worse yet, if they fall prey to deception, they're in peril of losing the reward for which John has worked so hard for them to win. Now that's a lot packed into a short letter, Second John. Back in June, I said that John's second letter with its address to the chosen lady and her children has been a great encouragement to me as I have uh, walked beside my mother and watched her go through uh, just a serious health issue. The encouragement from that letter is the wealth of divine blessings for the chosen lady which I believed are enjoyed by my mother as herself a chosen lady. I also said that if I could only have one page of the Bible, I might choose Second John, not only for the letter of itself, but if I could turn that page over, I would have John's third letter as the bonus. And that's where we are today. We've moved from... Second uh, John, now to John's third letter. It's another short but amazing letter from the hand of the disciple whom Jesus loved. I believe that John's third letter is a companion letter to the second letter. Given the similarity of thoughts and the phrases that John uses in both of these letters, like John expressing love in truth for the elect lady and love in truth for Gaius, uh, the expression of his joy in both letters of finding his friends walking in the truth, and then how he ends both letters, cutting them short because he would rather say more to them face to face. So just given the parallels of thoughts um, and I think also um, content uh, regarding uh, hospitality to uh, brethren who have gone out into the world um, says to me that they're companion letters. And for me, just as I'm amazed with the second letter of John, I'm amazed with this third letter because it reads like a dramatic play, complete with a hero and an anti-hero, the conflict with tragic effects, a moral crisis for the hero, where he must choose between good and evil and even ending with a cliffhanger. Okay. So how's that for an introduction now of this short letter? The shortest of the New Testament writings, by the way, that has been preserved uh, in providence for the blessings of the church. So with that, let me um, set the dramatic stage with you by looking at the various players and actors. 
got a good friend who teaches uh, a lot from the Old Testament narratives, and he often says, you don't know the players if you don't have a program, okay? So here's the program. The players include Gaius. He is the hero and the protagonist of the story. There is Diotrephes. He is the antagonist, the anti-hero. And then we have all these supporting actors in this play. You have the brothers, okay, who have gone out for the sake of the name. You have the outcasts, okay, uh, the ones who have been excommunicated. And you have this good man, Diotrephes, excuse me, Demetrius. And then lastly, we have the narrator and also the moral guide and the conscience of the story, and that's the Apostle John. Okay, so let's think about Gaius. Gaius the Great. Here's what we know about him from the opening verses of the letter. He is a man of truth. He is walking in the truth of the gospel. It's verse 3. I rejoice greatly, says John, when the brothers came and testified to your truth, as indeed you are walking in the truth. So up until this point, Gaius is known to be a faithful man, willing to help these brothers, who really are missionaries, who have gone out into the world with the true gospel and for the sake of the name. That's verses 5 and 6. Beloved, it is a faithful thing you do, Gaius, in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are, who testified to your love before the church. So that's our man, Gaius, a man of truth, who walks in the truth of God and who practices Christian hospitality in such a way that those benefited by his faithful efforts testify to others of his love. Next, we have Diotrephes. Diotrephes the Maleficent. Everything we need to know about him, the essentials, are in two verses, verses 9 to 10. We're told that John previously wrote to the church where Diotrephes is wielding influence and control. Perhaps that prior letter was 1 John. Uh, we don't know with certainty. But what John wrote in that prior letter is unimportant as to the details of it. What's important to our story is how Diotrephes responded to the letter. The text literally says Diotrephes does not receive us. And what John means is captured in the translation, he does not receive or accept our authority. And more than that is the way Diotrephes rejects John's authority. He does it with, what shall I say, trash talk. Okay. All of that is an affront to John's authority as an apostle, and it's an affront to how true leadership should work in a local church. 
Diotrephes is undermining the very foundation of the church. And here I'm thinking of Paul's words in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 to 20, that the household of God is built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, with Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. John was an apostle of Christ, and so he is part of the church's foundation. Refusing his authority is putting a jackhammer to the foundation. And it's ultimately refusing the authority of Christ who commissioned the apostles. Now to do that with politeness would still be serious error. But Diotrephes did it with wicked talk of nonsense about John. And that tells us a lot about the man, doesn't it? Proverbs chapter 6, verse 12. A worthless person, a wicked man, goes about with crooked speech. So Diotrephes' own speech condemns him. Do not imitate him in that, right? We should be people of gracious words and sound speech. But the real problem with Diotrephes is what? It's a problem of his motives. It's the problem of the desire for preeminence. Again, we might think differently about Diotrephes if his motives were more pure, let's say, though misplaced, for refusing to welcome the itinerant brothers and for putting people out of the church who did welcome them. We might show him some grace if he said, you know, my reasons for doing all of this <clears throat> is to protect the flock from the deception that surrounds us and of what John uh, acknowledged in his second letter. <clears throat> Pardon me. But that wasn't the case because that wasn't what his motive was for doing these things. What was it? Verse 9. He liked to put himself first. Now that's how the uh, English Standard Version uh, renders uh, the Greek, but I think the King James Version it captures it better. He loves to have the preeminence. That is why um, I want you to remember this part as the problem of misplaced preeminence. In all of life, and especially in the church, one only is to have preeminence, and that's Jesus Christ, the firstborn among many brethren, the king and head of the church, and the one to whom the kings of the earth should kiss to avert his wrath. Next to Christ, no one has preeminence. No one should even desire preeminence. And why? Because we are merely servants of the preeminent one. That's the way the great ones of the Bible thought about themselves. Servants. Consider John the Baptist, the one sent forth as the herald of the Lord. What did he say about Jesus and himself? 
says, I'm not worthy to untie even the lace of his sandal. He must increase and I must what? Decrease. That's John chapter 3, verse 30, by the way. So imitate John the Baptist. He had no desire for any preeminence before Christ. Consider Paul, perhaps the greatest missionary of the church's history. What did he say about his role in the church? I invite you to turn uh, and look quickly at 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 5 and 6. First Corinthians chapter three, beginning in verse five, he says, "You know, what is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So here's the significance of that." Neither he who plants, speaking of himself, right? Nor he who waters is anything but only God who gives the growth. So imitate Paul. Think of yourself uh, only as a servant. Lastly, consider Jesus himself. What was his mindset? even about his own preeminence. We know what it is because Paul tells us in Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 to 7, though Christ was in the form of God, he did not count it equality with God a thing to be grasped and held on to, I think is the import of that. But he emptied himself, <clears throat> taking upon himself the form of a servant. And as for his teaching, we have Luke chapter 9, verse 23. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Follow and imitate Christ. Do not imitate Diotrephes in his love of preeminence. Okay. All right, well, who's next in the cast of characters? It's the brothers, the band of brothers. They are, let's just call them stock characters. They're unnamed, but they are driving the movement and the plot of the story. They are strangers arriving from who knows where. It's not important. Gaius has welcomed them and helped them on their way to John. And John says to Gaius, it is a faithful thing that you did in all your efforts for them. And after spending time with John and his church, uh, the brothers have set out now on their return journey, and they will pass by Gaius a second time as they continue to go out into the world. And it's their return trip that is setting up the plot line of the story. 
In contrast to the deceivers that John talks about in his second letter, these brothers have gone out into the world for the sake of the name and proclaiming truth. The name is, of course, Jesus Christ. It's interesting to me that nowhere in John's third letter is Jesus Christ named by name. It's just this reference. They have gone out for the sake of the name. Well, we can tie the name to Christ in Acts chapter 5, verse 41 to 42. This is where the apostles have been imprisoned um, and then they're released. And in Acts 5, it says, Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. Okay? And then it goes on to say, verse 42 of Acts 5, And every day in the temple and from house to house they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. The name right, is Jesus. So how do we know that the brothers went out into the world to proclaim the truth and not deception okay, that John was so concerned about in his second letter? Well, I think we know this by three reasons. First, in verse 3, we're told that they saw and testified to John that Gaius was walking in the truth. And you have to know the truth yourself and be walking in it to be able to recognize it in someone else. That's reason number one. Second, they came as strangers, but they went away as brothers. And that's confirmation that John the Apostle recognized the authenticity of their faith and of their message. Second reason. Now the third. John tells Gaius to send the brothers on their way and support them in a manner worthy of God and so become fellow workers with them for the truth. That's in stark contrast to the warning in 2 John to give no welcome or support to any false teacher because whoever greets them takes part in their wicked work. So supporting the brothers in uh, 3 John must mean that they were bringing the teachings of Christ and acknowledging the truth, the central truth, of the incarnation that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. And the support of these brothers stands in contrast to Diotrephes, who refuses to welcome them. And also, according to verse 10, he stops those who want to welcome them. And if they do, Diotrephes puts those people out of the church. And there we have in our cast of characters all those outcast and excommunicated by Diotrephes. They are additional and important characters in the plot of our story. Just think for a minute of the spiritual damage that Diotrephes was doing in that church and to the true believers there. 
You know, Jesus had cautioned uh, against casting out weeds, lest in doing that, you did what? <laughs> you harmed the wheat, right? Well, how much more so if you're casting out the wheat to their harm and to the harm of the believers in the church? Diotrephes is doing great spiritual harm, not only to the people he cast out that were believers. They just wanted to help the brothers uh, and support their missionary work. But they're stopped or they're cast out. There are certainly tragic consequences to this conflict going on in the letter. But think about the other people in the church, what fear, that atmosphere of fear that Diotrephes was creating. And he was an obstacle to evangelizing the lost and to the spread of the gospel of the kingdom of Christ. And all that becomes the backdrop to the moral crisis for Gaius. And what is the crisis? Will Gaius stand firm and help the brothers in their return trip and become a partner with their work for the truth? Or will he retreat in the face of possible conflict with Diotrephes and perhaps the threat of his own communication, excommunication? Well, John knows that uh, the decision awaits Gaius, so he gives him a word of encouragement. And the encouragement is this. Choose the better and the good way. It's verse 11. Beloved, he says to Gaius, do not imitate evil, but imitate good. Whoever does good is from God. Whoever does evil has not seen God. And this is the heart and the key verse of the letter. So let's slow down and think about imitation uh, for a while. Let's think about the important role that imitation plays in the Christian life, both in the present and in the future. The Greek word that John uses gives us our English words mime, or mimic. But our notion of mimicking really doesn't capture the full idea here. To mimic is really only to copy. Okay, So I use these examples in uh, the Sunday school hour, but you take a little boy and he will have his toy tools and he mimics his father as his father is in the workshop. Or a young girl plays dress up and she mimics her mother. But to imitate, at least in the biblical sense of it, is a more mature idea of following a pattern set by another, not only in what they do, but in why they do it. So in my example of the young girl, she matures from playing dress-up to becoming a lady of inner charm and beauty, worthy to be praised for her wisdom and skill, because, to quote Old Testament scholar Bruce Walkie, she aspires to be like her mother. Her mother, who is herself a woman who fears the Lord and whose ways are worthy to be imitated. 
So, so too for the boy. He matures from mimicking with play tools to working with real tools alongside his father, and he learns his father's ways and methods. And along the way, he develops the heart and the mind of a skilled craftsman. In this way, the son honors his father by imitating his ways. And the wise father is intentional about how and what he teaches his son as they work together. Again, I, I think of Bruce Walkie. He tells a story about how he used to work in his garden with his young boys. Someone asked him once, uh, what are you growing in your garden? He said, I'm growing boys. Okay. That's the mind of the wise parent. Okay, we're slowing down. Let's take a uh, look at some verses on imitation. And I want to try to develop with you what I call a theology of imitation. Okay? First, some passages about the role of imitation in the spread and the reception of the gospel itself as it goes out into the world. So I invite you to turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. First Thessalonians chapter one. <clears throat> Paul says, For we know, brothers, loved by God, that He has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit, and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake, and you became, and here's our word, or at least a form of it imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you, having imitated us, have become an example for all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. Okay, for not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere. Okay, And part of the reason is because they imitated. Right? They imitated Paul and the missionary group and the Lord. Okay. Now go to chapter 2 in 1 Thessalonians. Look at verses 13 to 14. Paul says, And we also thank God constantly for this, that you, when you received the word of God which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God which is at work in you believers, for you, brothers, became, here's our word again, imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. Okay, so we're building our theology of, <coughs> of imitation. What do these passages teach us? Well, if you work backwards from chapter 2 to chapter 1, these passages, I think they say this, that imitation in the Christian sense is a validation of the regenerative work of God. The saving work of God in a person manifests itself in the believer coming to a full assurance of the gospel and then becoming imitators of other believers and how they live out the faith. And then going back to chapter 1, the believer individually and together with the whole church become examples for others to imitate as they receive 
the gospel. So in that way, the gospel goes forth everywhere by both the word of God and the testimony of changed lives. Okay, now some passages that focus on the importance and imitation on the ongoing life of the believer. Uh, go to 2 Thessalonians now. This is chapter 3, verses 6 to 9. In this passage, Paul is going to set before the church in Thessalonica really a choice of behaviors, okay? And watch how he directs them and guides them and how to make this choice. Okay, 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 6. Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you receive from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to, look at that, imitate us. Because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with labor and toil we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we do not have the right, but to give you in ourselves an example, here it is, to imitate. So what's the choice here? Well, it's either going the way of idleness or the way of industry. What's the right choice? The right choice is do not imitate idleness. But imitate Paul in the way that he worked. If you do that, then you are doing well because you're imitating what is good. Hebrews 13, verse 7. Uh, you don't need to turn there, but here's the verse. Remember your leaders who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their life. And here's our word. Imitate their faith. So like Paul's passages in First and Second Thessalonians, the author of Hebrews is giving Christians practical counsel as they go through the trials of life, the pressures of choices, often that set before you choices of good and evil. The counsel is this. Think about those who have led you in the Word of God. Look at their lives over the long haul, that's looking at the outcome of their lives. And then imitate their faith in Jesus Christ because they have banked everything on Jesus Christ, knowing that he holds their destinies. He holds the destinies of every generation of believers. He holds your destiny too, doesn't he? By the way, don't miss here the connection between decisions about who and what you'll imitate and the outcome, okay? Consider the outcome of their life, imitate their faith. That's kind of the uh, principle of decisions to deeds to destiny, okay? Actually, uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson puts it better. He says, sow a thought and you reap an action. Sow an act and you reap a habit. Sow a habit and you reap a character. Sow a character and you reap a destiny. So the author of Hebrews is saying, consider the men who teach you the word of God. That's the way of life to consider. Consider their thoughts, their actions, their habits, their character, and the outcome of all of that. Okay, And imitate them.
1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 5 to 17. Though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers, says Paul, because I came your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then be imitators of me. That is why I sent Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to you to remind me of my ways in Christ. So what Paul is saying is, and what he's not saying, by the way, he's not saying just imitate me, okay, or mimic me, I should say. He's not saying mimic me. He's saying learn my ways in Christ and then imitate those ways. That's precisely what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 1, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. And imitating Christ is mostly a matter of the heart and mind. Okay. So what of Jesus? What was the pinnacle of this teaching about imitation? It came on the night of his crucifixion, didn't it? When he washed the feet of the disciples. This is from John 13. John records when he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so am I. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet, for I have given you an example that you should also do just as I have done for you. And what's the point of that? Is it just to leave a legacy of foot washing in the church? I don't think so. The example he gave to the disciples and to us is that we should imitate all manner of service and self-sacrifice that flows from the servant's heart. That's really Philippians 2, verse 3 to 8, in high def, living color. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but to the interests of others, and have this mind among yourselves, which is in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptying himself, taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Benjamin Warfield preached a marvelous sermon, and he titled it Imitating the Incarnation. And he had this caution at the beginning of the sermon. He says, don't lose yourself purely in theological interest in what's going on here in Philippians 2. He says, rather, my paraphrase, keep your eye on the ball, okay? Seek to feel the force and the example, he says, of Christ for the government of our lives, okay? So don't keep it up here in the theological realm. It's got to get down into your heart and soul. Follow him. Pick up your cross daily and follow Christ. That's the mind that should govern our lives. Okay, so let's recap this theology of imitation we're developing. It's a key part of learning and living the Christian life through imitation. We want to imitate not just what we see outwardly in others, but what is going on inwardly. We want to imitate their heart for what they're doing. We want to imitate others in their ways as they imitate Jesus, who is the prime person and pattern for us to follow. And imitating and following a pattern of life displayed in others helps us make life decisions, okay, between the ways of evil and the way of good. And that's really, that brings us now to Gaius, okay. Because he's going to have to make a choice between whether he's going to step up and help the brothers 
a second time, or will he retreat because of possible conflict with Diotrephes? And a lot of it hangs in the balance on what he's going to decide. And so now enter Demetrius, Demetrius the Magnificent. What part does he play? Well, he's the foil in the story to Diotrephes. Diotrephes, you know, he's a worthless man of reputation. The truth doesn't bear good witness to who he is or what he's doing. In contrast, we have Demetrius. He's the man of good testimony, acclaimed, well-regarded, and more importantly, the truth bears witness to Demetrius. All that Demetrius is, Diotrephes is not. And so, Demetrius represents for us in this story the type of person, A, we want to be, but the type of persons you want to follow. Okay? Follow and imitate those who have a good testimony in the church of being of good character and whose lives ring true with the gospel. So Gaius has a choice. Two ways reflected in two men. The evil way of Diotrephes or the way of goodness in Demetrius. Which will he choose? That's the cliffhanger. But we don't know how it ends. <clears throat> if John could come to us this morning face to face, he would tell us how the story ends, but he can't do that. So let me speculate. I think the story ends well for Gaius for two reasons. One, because the past is often a prelude to the future, and because of the past and what we know of Gaius, a man of truth, walking in the truth, in charity and love, I think he'll step up and he'll support the brothers. Also, a second reason for a good ending is how John ends the letter. He says, peace to you. And in a literary term, we call that foreshadowing. Okay, He's foreshadowing the end of the story for us in Gaius. That Gaius will make the right choice, and it will end in peace for him. Okay, let me close the story quickly and make some application for us. Consider all that it means for you about who you will imitate and follow in terms of a pattern of life. You have Christians in your life who have some virtue worthy of imitation. I mean, you can find a lot of people to imitate in the scriptures, but it's nice to see it in flesh and blood, okay? As for me, I can think of a lot of people with various virtues that I want to imitate. Some here in this church, some others outside, uh, some still with us in this world, some gone on to the Lord, some young, sold old. So here are some of the virtues I see in others that I want to imitate. Again, I won't put a name with the virtue, but maybe you can put a name yourself. I have someone in mind to imitate in her acts of service. Another person in her sheer length of faith and devotion to Christ. Another for his concern in how we approach God and worship. Another for his generosity, his concern for others, and his gift of encouragement. Yet another for his devotion to the Word and the depth of understanding it and another for his enthusiasm for the word and for learning it. Um, still someone else. Um, this person I'll name, because I want to follow her and imitate her in her acts of charity and her devotion to the people less fortunate, and that's my mother.
But there's a more fundamental question you have to answer between, are you going to follow what's good or what's evil? And the fundamental question is, are you going to choose the way of self-interest or the way of self-sacrifice? Because the decision you make there will often uh, determine the outcome of who you're going to imitate and what you're going to imitate. You choose the way of self-interest, you're going to go the way of diatrophies. You choose the way of self-sacrifice, you're going to go the way of Demetrius and Gaius, and more importantly, the way of Christ. And if you follow that way of Christ, how does it end for you? Well, how did it end for Christ, who took the form of a servant? It was glory, right? Philippians 2, because he took the form of a servant, the Lord has given him a name above every name, glory. And the point that Warfield makes in his sermon imitating the Incarnation, he says, if you will walk the path of self-sacrifice following Christ, it'll end in glory for you too. Let me give you a verse for that. Revelation 3, verse 4, the letter to the church of Sardis. The Lord says, there's people there who have not soiled their garments. They will walk with me in white because they are worthy. And we know why they're worthy, because they picked up their cross daily and followed Christ. And then he says, the one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. And I can't think of any more glory for a believer to have Jesus Christ confess your name before the Father and all of the angels. If that's not motivation for following Christ and imitating Him in a life of service and self-sacrifice, I don't know what is. And so I come back to where I began. My favorite page in all the Bible. I still think it's 2 John, but I'm so glad that if I turn that page over, there's 3 John. Because of all that it teaches me about the way I should walk, what I should be about, my aim in life, and the outcomes of those choices. I leave you with that. Ponder who you're following and what your aim is in life and the outcome of those choices. May God lead you in the way of imitating Christ and the Incarnation.